Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Coming year in 2023, some of us do it just on a whim. Some of us, we like to plan. We like to make sure that we've crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, so that when we make that decision, which is a pretty significant decision nowadays, that we've done what is best for our pocketbooks and uh, a lot more than just the style points, if you will. Jeremy Cato is an automotive journalist, a three-time award-winning journalist from CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, good afternoon. How are you today? Terrific, Rob. I'm not on the second narrow's bridge. Well, <laughs> you're already you're already ahead of the game, and uh, I'm ahead of the game. <laughs> I appreciate you doing this for us today, and I think there's a lot of people that might be resting easy, idling as uh, we have this conversation. I want to talk a bit about uh, what to watch for when you're buying a new car in 2023. Um, I know there's the obvious things, but is there something that we could uh, maybe put in our back pocket so that when we go to the dealership or we do something online that we can at least keep our head on a swivel? Uh, well, I, I think the, the thing to watch for is what, what the models, uh, what vehicles are starting to stack up a little bit on dealer lots. Um, we've basically been, you know, having a, had a shortage of inventory for the better part of almost three years now because of, uh, you know, the pandemic and the semiconductor shortage. But, but there's there's products starting to arrive now. Prices are starting to stabilize and even go down. Um, and the used car market at the same time is also starting to look much much uh, more normal. Um, you can negotiate for prices. You can do some deals. Unfortunately, just as prices starting to stabilize and uh, inventory are, is starting to become more available, interest rates are going up. <laughs> so, yes, you know, or have gone up. So it's a little bit tricky. So the, yeah, the 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 word to the wise, if you're shopping, is keep your eye on what's what's on lots on uh, on dealer inventory in terms of dealer inventory. If you're looking for a used car, you're going to have more options because fewer vehicles. Uh, there's more there's more inventory as well um, in the used car market uh, uh, so that that's one 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 trend to look for another is you're going to see uh, a flood of new electric and hybrid vehicles you know, pouring into the marketplace this year everything from ford's lightning pickup which is an eagerly anticipated all-electric vehicle to an interesting uh, entry in the in the almost electric category, which is a new version of the Toyota Prius, which looks more like a modern car. Uh, it's a gasoline electric hybrid, uh, lots more power and less weird looking. Um, which, if you're not confident that the electric uh, electrification of the 
the new vehicle marketplace is going to explode with affordable options than a, a Prius. Personally, if I were going to buy a vehicle right now, I'd buy a gasoline electric hybrid. Get terrific fuel economy, low emissions, and you don't have to worry about charging. Well, I have a Ford Fusion, and I get anywhere from about eight fifty to nine fifty on a full tank, which uh, suits me just fine. But my wife has a Tesla, and we go back and forth on the love and joy of the Tesla because obviously it's slick. It's got the really cool computer, and you know what? It's deathly quiet. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I'm wondering right now this next wave coming through you mentioned that there's going to be an influx of electric cars in 2023 um mm-hmm. is is tesla still a good buy a smart buy, or is this maybe a year that you kind of step away from that a bit it's a terrific it's a terrific question because it, when you look at tesla uh, I, I think you have to look at tesla in, in a, a couple of different ways uh, some of the some of the lineup at tesla is as old as dirt i mean the model s um, you know, I mean, basically, it's uh, you know, there, there's some been, there's been some technological improvements, uh, but you know, from a design standpoint and the basic uh, vehicle, uh, you know, it's more than it's a decade old. Which in in car terms, that's that's three generations of vehicles. I mean, mm. most automakers do a complete uh, remake of a model every you know three to five years, depending on the model. Um, so, so that's that's a piece. Uh, the long-anticipated Cybertruck that Tesla was supposed to have out this year doesn't look like, at best, it's going to appear uh, until the end of the year, which is one of the reasons why Ford's Lightning all-electric pickup has just exploded. I mean, I, I, Ford thought that it might have pre-orders of 50,000 units and has pre-orders of 250,000 units. Uh, and I think some of that is the, the shines come off a little bit on Tesla. Um, and then the other thing to look to think about with Tesla is, uh, I, you know, the marketplace is now competitive. I mean, uh, two years ago, Tesla's, Tesla was uh, accounted for about 75% of all electric vehicles sold in, in North America. And um, that's, that, that's dropped considerably along with the, <laughs> with the share price of Tesla, which is down 60% this year as Elon Musk slowly whittles down uh, his, <laughs> yes. uh, his ownership stake. So I think what you're looking at is a, a lot of uh, manufacturers which, uh, you, you know, saw Tesla as a real threat, everybody from Audi to, you know, Volvo's high-performance uh, subsidiary Polestar, uh, you know, they got the message that there's a big chunk of people like your spouse there who uh, really want a quiet, high-performance, very sexy, very cool electric vehicle, and, and consequently you're getting lots of them. Uh, there's a part of me, I'm going to have to save this for a rainy day, so promise we'll come back and do this again, because I want to sure, talk about yeah. Elon selling his stock and if that's actually a good thing for Tesla or not. But again, we'll have to save that for a rainy day. Very quickly, in about 60 seconds or less, you wrote a wonderful <laughs> free ebook that's available at your website, Swimming with the Showroom Sharks. <laughs> yeah. Is there something that you could give me, just a little tidbit, that when I walk into a room, I don't feel so darn intimidated? Well, you know, I many years ago, I actually sold cars for a story I did for Canadian Business Magazine. And one of the things that we talked about that's really the essence of, of that ebook that I wrote is that if you want money back on a, on a purchase of a vehicle, ask. It's amazing how often people don't ask. They, you know, especially Canadians, we're, we're nice people and we it's don't like negotiating. <laughs> it's true. You know, yeah, ask. Ask for, I want I want $5,000 off on whatever the, the offer price is here. And it's the salespeople. And when, you know, when I was in the showroom, 
they would laugh. They would call people who didn't ask for a discount laydowns, you know, because they just laid down and paid. And uh, so there's there's this idea that if you don't, well, I mean, it's kind of like what uh, my dad used to say: if you don't ask, you don't get. Gotcha. And uh, so so yeah. ask. If you want to borrow my car? Ask. <laughs> you know. I appreciate so ask that. Ask for a discount. I have ask been a lay down before. I have been a lay down before. Fully admitted yeah. it. So, you know so what? Ask. I, I oh, will. Ask. I will. Next time around, <laughs> I, I get in trouble from my wife. Even we're at garage sales. She's like, "Why don't you bargain?" I'm just like, "Oh, two dollars yeah. seems fine." Anyways, Jeremy, <laughs> thank you for this wonderful conversation. Let's talk again. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Open dialogue when it comes to restaurants in Vancouver. I love them. I am a former restaurant owner, a restaurant tour, if you will. A brief 16-month stint, got in, got out. It's almost like uh, when your parent says, don't touch the plate, the hot plate. <laughs> you put your hand on it, you're like, oh, that is hot. That's how I felt getting in and out of the restaurant industry. But you know what? I've got such a respect for people to get into it and succeed at it. And even when they fail, just the effort of going through it and being a part of a really unique industry, a world-class industry, I might add, when it comes to Vancouver and across the Lower Mainland. Let's talk about the state of the restaurant and the food services industry this past year. Ian Tostison, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, kind enough to join us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Ian, good afternoon. Hey, Rob. Just taking a break from the uh, junior hockey. Uh, that's Amazing. right. Yeah. I know. Spoiler alert. Here's a spoiler <laughs> alert. Our good guy, Connor Bedard, just scored his second goal. He's got a, an assist and two goals. So Canada's winning 4-1 over Germany. Well, I hope they really laid on thick this game. I didn't like how they played against Czech, losing 5-2. So uh, it'll be nice to have a bounce-back game, and Germany seems ripe for the picking. Yeah, no kidding, huh? So you own a restaurant. Let me ask you, what what, what restaurant, Rob? uh, It was a little humble restaurant that I bought from Mark Taylor called Sienna. It was at 12th and Granville. Um, Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, problem was following a guy that was one of the best sommeliers in Canada. And then when people came to me and asked me some of the questions about the wine... And it was something more than red or white. Red or white, I was in tough. So <laughs> yeah, you get Mark on the speed dial. Hang on a yeah. I'll get right back to you. Oh, yeah. he was he was uh, really good. He knew his stuff. So, anyways, yeah, let's um, talk about the the state as a whole yeah. of restaurants in 2022 and the food services industry as a whole. I was assuming it would have been a bounce back year. Am I right to make that assumption? Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, so, if you consider where we were at this time last year, we were still in COVID. Uh, masks, uh, vaccination cards were still what we had to do. A little bit of uncertainty about going into New Year's Eve, whether it was going to be um, uh, shortened like it was the year previous. So a lot of uncertainty. Uh, it was, what, March of this year where all that came down. So we've been operating in a sort of a free spirit since the spring. And it's going really well. We had a good summer. Weather was good. And um, this Christmas season um, has been really strong for most restaurants. We're seeing... A lot of, um, uh, not so much, I mean, we've had Christmas parties and these, you know, but we're seeing a lot of standard receptions and, and it's a whole need for people. They still haven't satisfied their need to go out and socialize. I mean, that's that's working for us. So it's keeping the restaurants really busy, which we're very grateful for. We're, we struggle with labor, like everybody uh, is, um, front of the house uh, and back of the house. So, you know, our cooks and chefs and our servers. Uh, a lot of that was, you know, part of that is, a lot of that actually is demographics. Some of it is because people left the industry because we were we were shut down, Rob, 114 days 
over the two and a half years, which was the best record in all of North America. But nevertheless, there were a number of people that you know had to pay their rent. So, but uh, you know, by and large, um, you know, it's good. I mean, we we're, we are going into 2023 optimistic. Um, we definitely are dealing with uh, high prices and commodities and uh, and shortages. But you know, you know, as a restaurateur, um, you know, it's our jobs to make sure that we offer price points and creativity in the menu and things like uh, happy hours and ways to navigate so we don't have that sticker shock or we try to minimize that to the extent that we can by offering, you know, some different offerings and, you know, different promotions and stuff. So I would say, you know, it's, we, you know, we're not out of the woods. It's going to take us a couple of years to sort of regain our footing from the damage that was caused of the pandemic. But by and large, it's pretty good. You know, one of the things that I noticed, and I was really big into food costs and making sure that I was able to balance the books as best that I could. And I noticed over the course of the year, you know, certain foods just weren't available or they skyrocketed. And, you know, I almost felt like it was a bit of a mini stock market when it came to buying food for the restaurant, because, you know, on a Tuesday, it's this price on a Thursday, it's that price. And on Saturday, you can't get it for two weeks. So did we notice this year in particular that it was really tough getting certain things into BC and into these restaurants? Uh, The supply was pretty good. It was, um, it was more the pricing and, you know, the, the larger, and this is where there's, you know, the, the industry is, is, is there, there's a few issues. Even the larger restaurant groups, uh, you know, they've got forward contracts to buy food. So they're generally covered. It doesn't necessarily cover their costs uh, or the increase in costs. It's the smaller restaurants that really get affected by that. And they, and it takes a lot of time, as you say, to, you got to go here, go to the market, do this. They have a different sort of pattern of purchasing than the bigger guys. But um, yeah, very much so. It's it's you know the uncertainty it has been on supply. You know, um, gee, I'm going to put this in the menu. I hope we can I can fulfill that. Um, we went through that with uh, salad recently because of the situation with drought in California. That's now back online. But you know, if you're like um, you're a highs and you specialize in Caesar's table side salads, that that's a tough one. Right? That's that's part mm-hmm. of your signature. So. But it, that's but again, it's straightening out. What's not straightening out is is are the is, is the inflationary pricing. But like I said, a lot of things we can do in our menu. Uh, and then what we're seeing is people they're using it differently. So they're going to brunches, they're going to happy hours uh, to navigate around that. We're not seeing a pullback by the consumer or by our guests, if you will, um, which around this recessionary discussion that's out there right now. Ian, I'm sorry, I wish I had more time to talk about this, but I do want to talk about, do you feel that the restaurants locally were supported enough by government? Do you feel that there was enough to help at least quasi-bridge that gap during those tough days? 100%. Uh, The the government, provincial government in particular, um, did a great job. You know, know, we, we had a great relationship. We... It was more driven by what we felt we needed versus waiting for government. So they were very responsive. That's going to be our big goal this year is to make sure that the government stay responsive. They don't start getting into red tape and regulation and going back to where we came from. We don't have the resources to deal with a lot of that stuff. You know, we're highly regulated and we just need it. We need a, a, a you know, the runway to be clear right now and just let us operate. So, and I, I think we'll get that cooperation. The, the realization of how large the industry was quite became quite apparent to the government. They realized that you know it's such an uh, you know it's so important from an employment point of view and from a you know a whole tourism point of view and stuff that they've got we've got to work together to keep the industry strong. 
Love it. Well, I appreciate you stopping by. By the way, last night I was watching a uh, documentary on David Foster and all the different people that he'd helped. And uh, I was amazed at that Rolodex, the superstars that he had worked alongside. I know you've got ties to the David Foster Foundation. So uh, it was a a good watch. Amazing. Yeah, anything with David in it, it's worth the watch because he's he's probably the most talented person in our generation and probably the most humble. The guy uh, is really an awesome guy. Yeah, it's, it's good entertainment. Awesome. Well, thank you for stopping by, Ian. Let's do this again right. soon. Happy New Year, Rob. <laughs> I don't want to call myself a full-on movie buff. It is a quasi-movie admirer. <laughs> Maybe that's the way we'll go. I defer to the experts, including the man that joins me now, Rick Forchuk. Rick, how are you today? Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, and... Um... I'm more than a buff. I think I'm a buffoon, but I get my drift. (laughs) I get it. Well, it's why I defer to people like you who really delve into these movies. And, you know, with just a couple of days before we flip the calendar to 2023, great time to reflect on uh, some of the things from the silver screen. So I'm going to throw a movie at you right out of the gate, and we'll kick things off this way. We'll start with the best of the season, best of 2022, that is, Amsterdam, which really seemed to um, rub people the right way. It didn't rub me the right way. I thought really? it was one of the worst movies of the year. Yeah, really. Really, I, I thought that was a terrible movie. And um, it had an excellent cast. We have Kristen Bale, Anya Taylor-Joy, Margot Robbie, Chris Rock, John David Washington. They completely wasted here as David O. Russell turns him into a bunch of talking heads with not very much to say. And you can watch very quickly for Taylor Swift in the only action sequence early on, which lasts just a few brief seconds. I don't know what happened with this film. Uh, It did not do well at the box office. Um, The inside critics liked it. All of the, uh, not all of the, but most of the really artsy aficionados liked it. Um, Most average moviegoers didn't because they didn't go. uh, Or when surveyed, there's a thing called cinema score that uh, in the U.S. and major markets, uh, they survey people leaving the first uh, showing of a new movie. And that's what they thought. Cinema score got terrible, terrible results. Most people leaving the theater said, wasted my time. I felt that way, too. I didn't like Amsterdam. I thought it was a bad movie. But wow. These things are extremely, these things are very subjective, of course, because for every person who thinks it's a bad movie, there's somebody who says, well, then what's he talking about? What does he know about anything? So I didn't like Amsterdam. Didn't do it for me at all. Well, is that not back-to-back uh, clunkers then for Margot Robbie, who coming into the year was really as hot as a pistol? Well, exactly. And uh, you have to ask yourself the question, what was she thinking? Or what was her management thinking? <laughs> yes. uh, because Margot Robbie is also in Babylon, which is in theaters right now. It opened last weekend. It's a dreadful movie. Absolutely a dreadful, dreadful movie, despite the fact that it's got Brad Pitt and Gene Smart and Margot Robbie. Uh, but it's also got a script that doesn't go anyplace and uh, doesn't really do anything. And it is uh, starts with about 30 minutes of... Um, rampant orgies, debauchery, and uh, nudity, uh, and sexuality. That leaves Brad, Margot, and Gene Smart, uh, and a whole lot of other people who should know better, standing around wondering what happened. Because again, a big bust at the box office. This one did not do any business at all. So what we'll have to wait and see, Rob, is whether or not the Academy, when it starts voting for Oscars, picks this as one of those films that, wow, it's about the movie business in the 1920s and the early 30s in Hollywood, Therefore, it has art written all over it. Let's give it some nominations. Uh, we'll see if that happens. I, I don't think it will, and it shouldn't. Uh, it's uh, directed and written by Damien Chazelle. He did 
La La Land and Whiplash, a pretty bright guy. I just didn't like the movie at all. I thought it was one of the worst I've seen this year. You know, Rick, I think we're going to pivot here. I was going to start with the best, but we're on back-to-back negatives. So maybe we should just finish this whole segment on the worst of 2022 before we get to the good stuff. Um, Another one that seemed to miss was Don't Worry Darling. And this was one that a lot of people were curious about. Why didn't this one hit? Yeah, that's a good question, because I really, really wanted to love this movie. Everything I knew about it going in, I thought, wow, this is going to be just great. It was shot in the Palm Springs area. It has a Stepford Wives vibe to it. It's a company town, but we don't know what the company actually does. And uh, the men leave their homes simultaneously each morning, driving classic 60s T-Birds and Corvettes. Uh, they return for dinner and for to their eagerly awaiting wives in the evening. We've got Florence Pugh and Harry Styles, just great in this movie. The look and the feel is right out of the 60s. Everything is deadly accurate. Unfortunately, it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, it, it could go somewhere, but it doesn't really get there. And a movie that doesn't have a payoff at the end, in my opinion, for the most part, is not a good movie. You want to be able to leave the theater saying, wow, I got it. And did they ever wrap that up nicely? Didn't happen with Don't Worry, Darling. That did not bad business at the box office. It wasn't a movie that people generally hated. I just thought that um, Olivia Wilde, a first-time director here, could have done a more credible job. And I think for a first project, it was okay, but she needs to go back to film school. That's a Don't Worry Darling, not a great film. Wow, that's a, that's tough criticism. Um I was wondering, and you know what, I'm, I'm actually big onto the Netflix, so I'm huge into Homeland, and when I saw that Timothy Chalamet was in a movie, I thought, okay, well, this can't go wrong, but Bones and All seems to come up a little flat. Yeah, it went wrong, too, despite Timothy Chalamet. He's great. Chalamet is just a great actor. Uh, this movie is the story of young people on a road trip looking for their next meal, and they happen to be cannibals. Otherwise, they're just regular, well-adjusted young people uh, looking for life and love, and a new meal. Uh, the movie didn't go anyplace either. It didn't really work on any level. Uh, Bones and all did not do much at the box office either. And audiences that, at CinemaScore leaving theaters said, oh, that was awful. It was just awful. Now, not every person said that, obviously. Um, so you can look at a film like this and say, it's got Timothy Chalamet in it. It can't be all bad. I'm going to watch it for him. And that's fair enough. I have no problem with that. Somebody could say the same thing about Babylon. They could say, I want to watch it for Brad Pitt. Fair enough. But in terms of being a, a good movie, a well-put-together movie, I would say not likely at all, Rob. I, I'm so amazed at this year. How, okay, before we get to the best doves, Rick, what would you say if you could define 2022 in maybe a word or just a sentence when it comes to the industry as a whole? Was this just kind of the uh, the bridge year, the forgotten year? How would you describe 2022? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, and I would say a bridge year is a good way to describe it. Uh, we're coming out of COVID. Uh, we have a movie business uh, that has really been in, in a real challenging time because even though theaters finally opened up, a lot of people, particularly older people, didn't want to run the risk of going to theaters. Now, I've been in theaters every weekend since they opened, and uh, sometimes they were busy and sometimes they were not. But from the business's point of view, the movie business's point of view, if it wasn't a sequel, like a big Avengers movie, if it wasn't a sequel, it didn't seem to do as well. Spider-Man, same thing. Uh, but that, those tended to skew to younger audiences. So I think the challenge is COVID, and we're not done with it yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens next year. 
Um, the box office has really been, uh, you know, there have been a couple of big films that have done very well. But generally speaking, the movie business is down. That hurts theaters. Uh, it hurts a lot of people in the business. So we shall see. Uh, see if the bridge continues uh, to overcome things or if it's going to be just a standalone year next year. Looking forward to it. Though. That's a very good question, though, Rob. I had a friend that just texted me yesterday, and he says it was worth the wait. And I didn't know what he was talking about, and that he realized that he went to see Avatar. 13 years between these two films, James Cameron uh, apparently hits this one out of the park. Your thoughts on Avatar The Way of Water? Well, I agree with your friend. It was worth the wait. I thought it was a sensational movie. I thought those 13 years kind of flew by. Uh, It's a fantastic film, the arboreal forests of the mood of Pandora, and now the oceans have this visual extravaganza. Uh, yesterday, the movie topped $1 billion in its first 12 days open. So that's equal to anything anybody has done. It is on track because it has legs. Uh, this one is going to stay in theaters for a long time. So it's on track to do the $2 billion that James Cameron says he needs to do to break even and then start making money after that. The challenge with it has been China. Uh, China normally, with a film like this, would add an awful lot to the bottom line. But they're having significant COVID problems in China, so the movie didn't open as strongly as they thought. However, uh, that was made up for by Europe and uh, the North American markets, which had just been loving this film, loving it, loving it, loving it. I thought that it was great. I thought that uh, Cameron knew exactly what he was doing. It was wonderful technically. It also had a great story to it. And it was just what's not to love. Hats off to James Cameron for what I thought was just a marvelous piece of work for Avatar, The Way of Water. Love the movie. Another one that uh, I heard through the grapevine that you loved was The Menu. I did. And you know what? This one made most people's uh, 10 worst lists, The Menu. Uh, I put it on my top 10 list. No kidding. This is Rafe Fines. Yeah, this is Rafe Fines. <laughs> He's just excellent as, a, as an exotic chef who's got an isolated island restaurant he has people waiting months and even years just to come and show up at his food establishment. You have to take a yacht out there. It's somewhere off the coast of Georgia. And uh, this is an excellent story at every level. Uh, we've got Anya Taylor-Joy, who's fabulous in this movie. She's great in everything she does, I think. Uh, it's a place where the characters and table settings could have been from Agatha Christie. The plot could have been stirred by Alfred Hitchcock. What I liked so much about this film is that there was no predictability and there was a lot of guessing as to who did what to whom. And that's why I liked it. When I walked out of the theater, I said to my wife, um, you know what? I've never seen a movie like that before. And I can safely say to people, see the menu and you'll say, you know what? I've never seen anything quite like this. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who it's going to happen to. And you're not entirely sure that what you're seeing is the real thing. Or is it not? Very, very well done. So I liked it a lot. Uh, A lot of people didn't like the menu. And again, that's the subjective nature of movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, one person's person's meat is another person's poison. But I did like it a lot. (laughs) One that I saw with my wife that we both enjoyed, and and we're light movie takers, meaning every once in a while a rom-com fits us perfectly. The Lost City was good. And we both came out, speaking of having conversations coming out of the movie theater, we loved the chemistry between Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I really like this movie as well. And it did big box office. And it will never win an Oscar for anything because it's just a real nice, popular, romantic comedy adventure. Uh, she's the author of romance novels, Sandra Bullock. And the, he's the male model hunk who's depicted on all the book jackets. Uh, 
they end up in the jungle adventure. You know, think about romancing the stone. It goes back to that kind of genre. And it puts them in danger at every turn. And just watch, and you did see this. So you, you, if you thought that Brad Pitt was just outstanding in his extended cameo role, uh, you'd be feeling exactly what I felt. Not an artsy movie, not an Oscar contender, but for my money, a lot of very, very good fun. That's The Lost City, Sandra Bullock, and Channing Tatum. Really worth seeing. Rickspicks.ca is where you can find Rick and his assessments on said movies and many, many more. Rick, thank you for doing this. I don't know if this is the last time we get together before the uh, calendar flips, but what a pleasure, and thank you for rolling with the punches here, and uh, appreciate your time today. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Rob. Take care.